Let me welcome you again. You're sounding great today, both band and people out there singing. Travis, I think the rust is officially knocked off. Good job. Uh, sounding good. Um, all right. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, but uh, going to do something a little different this morning. Before we get into the message today, I want to talk uh, just briefly about some things uh, going on here at, uh, at church, and then we are going to uh, pray together for our team that is going uh, to Honduras. Uh, coming up soon, we've got 14 people going, uh, three people leaving um, Thursday, me and a couple of Pastor Justin and a guy from his church, Cherokee Heights, are going down for me and him to teach a seminary class, and then the rest of the teams uh, leaving on the 18th. We're coming back on the 25th. But the um, first thing I want to do is just I just want to share uh, some blessings uh, that God's been giving us lately as a church. I mean, I honestly think that January was one of the best months that we've ever had uh, as, as a church. And we celebrate our 16th anniversary. Uh, we celebrated our 500th baptism, and we baptized the, the last four Sundays. Uh, we baptized seven people so far this year, uh, most of them brand new believers, a couple of them, a couple of men that we've been praying for for a long time. And so we thank God for what he's doing there, uh, you know, growing attendance-wise. Uh, I think the ministry team meeting was great, uh, you know, have people stepping up into, uh, into ministry and uh, reset uh, w- w- was great. Um, you know, we, we launched the app. We saw a couple get married. We birthed a small group. We've had 15 new members so far this year. Uh, our general fund giving in January uh, was $57,000 plus, and we had the rest of the money come in for the Honduras shoe supply. Um, you know, John Harrell went on a mission trip to, to Nepal, so um, praise God. I mean, he's doing a lot of great things. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. Um, but at the same time, with blessing and, and, and growth uh, comes adjustment. Uh, so not only has God been blessing us as a church with uh, spiritual new births, but uh, he's also been blessing us with physical new births as well, um, which, you know, both are a blessing from God. You know, God is the giver of life, and uh, true life seems particularly gifted at the physical birth uh, part of things, uh, though. And... Um, you young folks, keep that up. But, um, you know, last Sunday in the second service, there were 11 babies in the nursery, uh, which is kind of nuts. So um, we're going to be making some, uh, some adjustments there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be making some adjustments there. We're, we're trying out a second class with that age group uh, this, in the second service this Sunday. Uh, see how that goes noise-wise in the hallway. We're considering kind of moving the nursery back to these couple of rooms here where it was when we first moved into this building. We had to do some soundproofing things uh, to make that happen, which would help us in general because, you know, we have noise issues from these uh, to the lobby in this hallway anyway. But, uh, you know, Leanne could uh, use some of you ladies uh, because that is one of the requirements for that age range, at least 16, to step up and and, and help with that. And, um, I, I mean... I just really encourage you to pray about that, consider that. I mean, part of, um, you know, part of our outreach, in a sense, is serving to enable families with young kids to hear the gospel, to hear the message. Uh, you know, if, if you're holding a baby and one of their parents gets saved, you share in that. God is using you in that. Plus, you know, you're laying a foundation for those kids. Uh, so I'd encourage you to think about that. I encourage you to keep inviting people. I, I'd encourage you, if you're, you're a part of True Life, you've been around here. Remember what we talked about with the two-minute rule for the first couple minutes uh, after the service? Uh, don't just congregate with the people you already know. Find somebody you don't know, meet them, make an acquaintance, make a friend, make people feel welcomed and, and, and encouraged, and let them know that uh, we are glad uh, that, that they're here. 
Uh, we'd encourage you, and, and Jake will put up a slide, but uh, if you haven't uh, downloaded our new app yet, we'd encourage you to do that. That'll help you uh, to keep up with things. You can see uh, the info up there. And uh, also, we'd really encourage you, if, if you're uh, new to the church, you've been around a little while and not plugged into a small group, that um, you know, if you want to grow spiritually, if you want, really want to build relationships, the best way to do that is to get plugged into one of our groups. We have a new group that started this month that, that meets on Wednesday nights at the creek. Uh, if you have kids, you can drop them off here for what's going on at the church and, uh, go, and, and go there. And you know, if you're interested in learning more about small groups, just check that on your uh, connection cards in your bulletin and turn that in and somebody will follow up with you. Or you can see me and I can uh, I maybe answer some of your questions or I can put you in touch with a small group leader or a small group pastor or one of our staff who could help you with that. So uh, as far as the Honduras trip, uh, we, we would ask you to pray for us a, a, as we go. Um, you know, some of the focal points on this particular trip is Pastor Justin and I are teaching a couple of uh, seminary classes. I'm teaching a Bible conference at a church, and you know, we'll be doing some other teaching and preaching. And a lot of what our team is doing this time is centered around training in some different uh, contexts and then evangelism, uh, particularly in the community of La Ermita in conjunction with the dental clinic. And uh, this is part of a process of uh, planting a church in that community. So you can pray for God to use this in, in, in bringing that about. As far as the overall ministry, we'd encourage you to keep praying uh, for uh, you know, the current churches and church plants and their pastors and leaders, for God to open up new communities to the gospel, uh, for the continued development of the Boys and Girls Clubs, particularly as we seek to raise more money there this year with the creation of the new board, and uh, for the expansion of the, the seminary to five more locations uh, as that's in the process, um, which sometime this month, the, the, the second or the first of the new locations, the second location in San Pedro Sula, will open up and begin classes. They've trained professors in, in, in that kind of thing. And so, you know, we just ask you to pray for the people that are going and for our families uh, and, you know, just for God to take care of us and guide our steps and bring about his will. So if you're going on the trip and you're in this service, I know several of you are in here, uh, would you come up front? And so as they're coming, why don't you just kind of come and gather around? Shane's going to lead us uh, as, as we pray, but encourage you to pray as well. And then after that, uh, we'll, we'll get into the message today.
All right, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, the Lord willing, instead of a half a verse or a verse, we're going to fly today and make it through three whole verses, so uh, yeah. Um, So I want to start with with a question, but I don't want you to answer out loud. It would actually probably be more than one question. just kind of want you to think about this, that uh, if, if, if you're a Christian, if you would say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that, that you're trusting in, in, in Christ for your salvation, why? And, 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 and why did you respond to the gospel at the particular time that you did? And why did you and maybe some other people didn't? Is it because you're more virtuous than them? Because you're wiser than them? That you could figure out the gospel? That you could figure out God? You know, were you smart enough to respond, to say, yeah, I want to go to heaven and I don't want to go to hell. I want to know Jesus. Look what he did for, for you. Um, and, and if you think that's why... Let me kind of push back with a couple of other questions. Um, you know, we've looked in 1 Corinthians, I think, chapter 1 a couple of times already in this series. And it says that God doesn't choose the wise. He chooses the things which are nothing. And we, we sang this in Glorious Day earlier, but this thought is not the invention of a songwriter. It's the words of Scripture. The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. How does a dead person do anything, much less respond to the gospel? Something to think about. So, um, what we're going to talk about today, these verses we're in, this may be, in, in some ways, the toughest section in Ephesians to understand. It's, it may, it's definitely in the top two or three. In fact, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians because it's deep, it's rich, it's dense, it's packed with spiritual truth, but it's very practical at the same time. Honestly, I think if, if you really learn and apply Ephesians, you pretty much know how to live the Christian life. That's why we're going to spend a long time in it. But we're not going to spend a long time in it because, mo- because most of it's hard to understand. Because it's really not. Most of it's, it's deep. It's profound. But it's pretty straightforward. But um, th- this passage we're going to look at today is something that is going to, we're going to deal with a concept uh, that people have wrestled with for years. And I- I'll just be honest with you. This, this is kind of a tough message for me to prepare because the way that I'm wired is I'm more intellectual than emotional. That may be shocking to some of you, but, um, and so, you know, I, I feel good about things if I feel like I understand it. And, and so I, I don't grasp, I don't understand uh, a, a lot of what we're going to look at today in Scripture. You know, there, there's some things in, in, in Scripture that you just have to go by what the Bible says. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> you just have to go sometimes by what the... This is the perfect day for that to happen, actually. Uh, just have to go uh, by... Was that Wallace or Titus? <laughs> okay. You just have to go by... Uh, now I have to, you know, get... You just have to go sometimes by what the Bible says, even beyond what we understand. Uh, And so, you know, this is hard to grasp uh, intellectually, but if we get what it means for us, it's not only spiritually enriching, I mean, it's kind of emotional. I mean, a couple times when I was studying this week, uh, there were some tears that came to my eyes. They didn't come out. But, but, I mean, it was close, which, which, which is kind of like uh, Rusty or Preston ugly crying, you know. So, um, so I, I hope you feel uh, encouraged by this. So, so last week we looked at verse 3 that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then verse 4 starts with these words. It says, just as. And, and, and really what that does is those two words, just as, connects what he's about to say in the rest of this section, verses 4 through 14, with what he just said in verse 3. Um, it carries through. So what, what he's getting ready to lay out for us, and we touched on this last week, is, are all these particular blessings that we have if we're in Christ. We're blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And, and so the, the focus then is in verses 4 through 6, we're blessed because God the Father has chosen us. In, in verses 7 through 12, and this is what Preston is going to cover with you next week. In verses 7 through 12, we're blessed because God the Son has redeemed us. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see that we're blessed because God, the Holy Spirit, has secured us. So uh, it's not maybe overt, but this is actually, in a lot of ways, one of the most amazing Trinitarian passages in the Bible. There's really no way to understand this apart from the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. And what you see here in, uh, in verse uh, six, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, glorifying the Father. In verse 12, to the, to the praise of his glory, glorifying the Son. In verse 14, uh, to the praise uh, of his glory, glorifying the Holy Spirit. Paul is worshiping, praising, blessing God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so, if you want to understand the, the particulars of this passage, Understand it within the parameters or within that framework, okay? And so let's focus on how God the Father has blessed us by choosing us. So let's read verses 4 through 6. And what we're going to look at, the first part of the message is kind of be the intellectual part. We're going to look at some spiritual realities, some facts about what it means that he has chosen us. And then in, in the second half of the message, we're going to look at, at, at three spiritual results, what it really means to us and for us and in our lives that the Father has chosen us in Christ. And so he says here, just as he chose us in him, meaning the Father chose us in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What a phrase, that we're without blame before God. Can you imagine that? I mean, we're not without blame when we look in the mirror. And we're not without blame from other people. But when God looks into us, if we're in Christ, we stand before him without blame. I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, just can't help it with that. There may be a little tear there. Uh, having uh, predestined us to, and predestined means to mark out beforehand. Uh, having predestined us to adoption as sons, and uh, let me just go ahead and say this. That's not like a you know, sexist word. I mean, I know we, you know, in our society today, we use more inclusive language. There's a point to this in the analogy, because in that day and time, the primary recipient in a will was the firstborn son. And so the point that Paul is making here is when God adopts us into his family, he treats us all, male or female, like firstborn sons as far as what we have in Christ and as far as what we're going to inherit from him in the future. We're sons and daughters of God, but our spiritual standing before God is like a firstborn son before the law in Roman society. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted 
in the beloved. So God the Father has blessed us by choosing us. And here's some spiritual realities of the Father choosing us. These are some of the things that he says in in, in this text. Uh, First, he lovingly chose us to have a relationship with himself. Uh, Back to verse 4, it says, just as he chose us, and, and, and literally what that means is, he chose us by himself and for himself. It's very relational. And, and, and it talks about how he, he did this in love. And, and it talks about how he, he did this to make us his children. It's, it's, it's relational. And so when we think of God choosing us, don't think of it as like the, the draft lottery where it's blind luck. Think of it as uh, a, a set of parents going and picking a child out of an orphanage. Or, or, or think about, I mean, there's no perfect analogy for this, but I kind of think about it as like uh, a guy sees a girl and falls in love immediately, and she has no interest in him. But he loves her, and he woos her, and he sets his affection on her, and he wins her heart, where at some point when he asks her to marry him, the yes is a foregone conclusion because he's wooed her to himself. He's won her heart over. That's more of what it's like than like fate or chance or luck. It's relational. God chooses us to have a relationship with him. Second, we see here, he chooses us in Christ. Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, Jesus. And so, what this is saying is that he chose us based on grace and not because of any good in us. Because if he was choosing us based on any good in us, none of us would get chosen. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says there's none righteous, no, not one. It says our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And and, and so everyone who truly believes in Jesus will be saved, but those who believe do so because they're chosen by the Father. Three. He chose us outside of time and space. In fact, he chose us before time and space even existed. Because look at what it says here. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And of course, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Before God even created us, he knew that we would sin, and he chose to, uh, that Jesus would die for our sins, and then he chose that in Christ some people would be saved. And, and, and so uh, this means if this happened, if this choosing took place before time and space even existed, that we um, can't take any credit for it, we didn't have anything to do with it, that it's all by the grace of God. Number four, we see here that he chose us according to the good pleasure of his will. And and, and this phrase literally means according to his favorable uh, decision. He, he chose us. He, he, he willed for us to be saved. And, and, and some people would say, well, you know, that's not fair. If God chose some people and he didn't choose others. And, and this is one of the ways where it's hard uh, to, to understand. I don't understand this. I don't claim to understand it. But I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And this is not an isolated uh, passage. And the, the reality is, is this. Fair would be All of us are condemned and go to hell. Grace is, some people get saved. I mean, complete justice is that we're all condemned. But he says he chose us according to the good pleasure of his will. And then, number five, he chose us for the purpose of glorifying himself by giving us grace. 
Meaning, since salvation originates in his choice and is accomplished by his grace, we can take zero credit for it. I mean, if he chose us, if if Jesus did the work, if the Holy Spirit draws us to God, enables us to believe and respond to the gospel, and we do have to respond to the gospel, but but if it's God who has the initiative, if if it's God, uh, the Father who's choosing, the Son who's redeeming, the Spirit who's drawing and securing us, he gets all the glory for it. We can't take any credit for it. And so that means that a really good definition, a succinct definition of a Christian is found in Philippians 3.3 when it says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. Who's a Christian? It's somebody who's worshiping God, rejoicing in Jesus Christ and his salvation, having no trust in themselves, uh, you know, knowing that they can do nothing to bring about their own salvation. That, that's a basic definition of a Christian. Now, we say all that, and then the pushback becomes, okay, God's sovereign, God's in control, God chooses, but what about our will? What about human responsibility? And, and, and how do you, you know, reconcile these two things together? How do you balance these two things out? And, and, and I would say the first thing that we should, we should not try to do is to balance these two things out. We should not try to reconcile them together. Charles Spurgeon, speaking on that subject, said, I never try to reconcile friends. Um, God is completely sovereign we're completely responsible. Um, when you say that, when we, people talk about us having a free will, that's only somewhat true. We, we do have a free will in the sense that we can make choices, but we are under what Martin Luther called the bondage of the will spiritually in that we are going to choose our way instead of God's way apart from Christ. That's part of what it means to be dead in, in our trespasses and, and, and sins. And so uh, you say God chooses, I thought uh, we had to choose him. Yes, Um, I, I think my favorite quote when it comes to this subject is, is this. D.L. Moody said this, you know, Jesus used as, as an analogy or a metaphor for salvation, a door. He said, you know, I'm the door of salvation. And, and D.L. Moody put, put it this way. He said, when you think of salvation as a door, when you're walking up to the door, you look over the door sill and it says, whosoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. That's the free offer of the gospel that we make to all people. But then he said, when you got through the door, when you were saved, and, 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 and you got through to the other side, and you look back over uh, the door sill on that side, it would say something like, uh, and, and this is quoting from uh, Peter, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. See, there's a conscious, a conscious ongoing you know, human level where we come to Christ through repentance and faith. But then there's kind of an unconscious spiritual realm and what's going on, the reason we're exercising repentance and faith, according to scriptures, we've been chosen by the Father and the Spirit is working in some way, and we could disagree about some of the details of that, to give us repentance and faith and draw us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me show you some other verses. John 6, 37, here's what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Notice that all that the Father gives me will come to me. Why are they coming? Because the Father has given them. But if you come, Jesus is not going to cast you out. I mean, sometimes people say, well, like what if somebody wants to be saved and they're not part of the elect? That's never happened. If you want to be saved... It's because the Father has given you to Jesus. Look at verse 44. Uh, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then John uh, 15, 16. Look at what Jesus said. He said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and so on and so forth. Um, keep going, Jacob. Um, uh, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know 
that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's really encouraging, isn't it? But don't divorce it from the verses that follow because it says, Moreover, uh, whom he predestined, whom he marked out beforehand, uh, or I'm sorry, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's God's ultimate plan and purpose for our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ. But notice what he says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's how it works. How do you know you're secure until the end? Because of what Scripture says there, because of his work in us. Look at what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians. He says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jay, go back to verse uh, 13 for a second. Um, Chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's God's choosing. It's our believing. You can't separate the two, but the initiative always comes from God, so the glory always goes to God. Um, let's, let's keep going. Um, notice this in, in Acts 13. It says, By him everyone who believes is justified, declared righteous from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Then look at what Paul says in verse 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. What makes you a Christian? When you believe in Jesus Christ, why do you believe? Because you're chosen, because you're appointed to eternal life by the Father. It's all by His grace. Um, Let's keep going. Uh, 1 John 2, 2, it says, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Listen, Jesus died for the sins of everyone. Jesus died for everyone's sins. Uh, So his uh, atoning death on the cross is sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. But Scripture teaches us it's only efficient to those who believe, and those who believe are the ones who are chosen by the Father. And then one other verse, 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul says, Therefore I endure all things. For the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. You know what that's saying? Is God ordains the ends as well as the means. The end is the salvation of those that he has chosen. The means is the preaching of the gospel. And we see this throughout the New Testament. So, you know, we preach the gospel. We call people to repentance and faith. If someone believes, we glorify God because... You know, God is the one who has worked to bring uh, that person uh, to himself. And and so, um, you know, at at the end of the day, um, you know, when people talk about like soul winning and things like that and, uh, you know, big on counting numbers and all that, um, I think that's kind of ridiculous because it glorifies man instead of God. And, you know, it assumes that everyone who makes a profession of faith is actually saved, which is never true. And then there's people that you don't know that are saved that are actually saved. And it's demonstrated by people's fruit. And then we'll know for sure, you know, when it's all said and done at at, at the last day. And and, and so, um, you know, this has been one of the debates uh, throughout the, in the church, and it's a big, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, all these kind of things, you know, did God choose us, did we choose him? And like I say, I don't think it's either or, I think it's both and, but God always has the initiative. So uh, let me read you something, and uh, then, we'll, then we'll move on to the practical part of this, the encouraging part of this, what it means to us. This, this kind of goes back in time. It, it's, a, it's a journal entry of a man by the name of Charles Simeon, Uh, as he was accounting a conversation with John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, on December 20th, 1784. And, um, you know, 
Wesley was more on the Arminian side, you know, that we can choose God. Uh, that's an oversimplification. Simeon was more on the Calvinist side that God chooses him. And I think in all of this, Bible-believing Christians are a whole lot closer together than they realize. And, uh, you know, we just need to agree to disagree maybe about some of the details. But, but there's some basics that we need to affirm. God's sovereign. We're responsible. God chooses. You know, we have to respond uh, to the gospel. But uh, Simeon said this. And, and understand, you know, this, we don't talk like this anymore. But uh, they had a better command of the English language than we do now. I mean, that's just, if you read an old book, that's just true. Uh, he said, sir, I understand that you're called an Arminian, and I've, sometimes, and I've been sometimes called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers, which I've never had a theological discussion with anyone <laughs> prefaced it with that comment, but like I say, it's, uh, it's uh, over uh, 200 years ago. Uh, but before I cons- consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? Yes, said Wesley, I do indeed. And if you believe the Bible, you're going to agree with that. He says, and do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? He said, yes, solely through Christ. If you believe the Bible at all, you believe that. He said, but sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? He said, no, I must be saved by Christ from first to last, which if you believe the Bible, you believe that. He says, allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? And Wesley says, no. What then? Are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God, as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And if you believe the Bible, you believe that. And, and is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you into his heavenly kingdom? And he says, yes, I have no hope but in him. And then he says, Then, sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again. For this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold and as I hold it. And therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. And I think that's a really good place to stand as the church of Jesus Christ. So, those are some spiritual realities of God choosing us. But here, I'm going to give you three results. And uh, I kind of reworded them last minute, so some of you follow along with the outline in your bulletin. Uh, they look a little different. I personalized them a little bit more. But three things that we see in this text, three results of being chosen by the Father. One is, I am holy and blameless. I'm holy and blameless. Uh, Look again what he says in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And he says that, uh, which is a word that indicates purpose. For the purpose of uh, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So God chose us. To make us holy, which we talked about uh, this a um, couple weeks ago. God chose us to be holy. He chose us. He set us apart unto himself where we now belong to him. And, and, and he chose us uh, to make us blameless. You know, we can stand before him. We, we can come into his presence. Jesus has conquered that great divide between us and the Father. But more than that, it, it means this. The, the word literally means, um, it, it means to look down into. And so it's kind of like when God examines us and he sees all and knows all. But if God did a spiritual biopsy on us, If he did a spiritual MRI on us, if we're in Christ, our position before him is that we're forgiven, we're cleansed, uh, we're what the writer of Hebrews described as perfected forever by the blood of Christ. That's how God sees us. 
That's your standing before God. You're holy and you're blameless. And we talked about identity a couple of weeks ago. This is how he wants us to see ourselves as holy and blameless, as as righteous in his sight. And that's the only way we can be his children because God can't dwell. He can't relate to sin. Now, then practically what that means is, is that, uh, you know, our spiritual growth is living out of our position, walking it out, living it out, living up to who we are in Christ. And so as we look to Jesus and we trust him and, and we rely on him, as we know more and more who we are, then we live more and more like we're set apart and we live less and less uh, with sin and we live less and less with self-condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He's made us blameless. And, and so you know, you don't have to spend your life, you know, in this endless introspection of figuring out everything that's wrong with you and beating yourself up over it, doing penance to make yourself more acceptable in the sight of God. Just realize that you're completely accepted in the sight of God by His grace based on what Jesus has done and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as He convicts of sin, uh, confess that sin. But instead of beating yourself up, run back to the cross where it was all paid for. So I am... Holy and blameless. If you're in Christ, you are holy and blameless. Can we say that together on the count of three? If you're a Christian, if you can say this, and if not, God's you know, call to you today would be to repent and believe the gospel. But let's say this together and say it like we mean it. If we really believe this is true, on the count of three. One, two, three. I am holy and blameless. Number two, I am adopted as his child. Look at verse 5. He says, having predestined us, which means to mark out beforehand, uh, to uh, adoption as sons, we talked about what that means, by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, when it says by Jesus Christ, it means that Jesus is the intermediate agent of our adoption. Okay, so I want us to think about this for a minute. First, you know, in, in, in adoption, the Jews didn't practice legal adoption, but the Romans did, and there was this process that you had to go through. But ultimately, if someone was adopted, they became a new person in the eyes of the law. Their past was erased. Their debts were erased. Uh, you know, they became uh, a fully accepted uh, child in that family, and they could never be written out of that will. That, that's the, the picture. That's the background from which Paul was writing. But, but he says, if, as God adopts us, He does this through the agency, through the mediation, through the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus was the go-between of our adoption. Now, my wife Robin, actually literally over the last few months, was a go-between in an adoption. Um, She was having lunch with a lady uh, one day who um, shared about uh, a lady that, that she knew of who had birthed a child in, in a terrible, horrible circumstance and, and asked her if, um, asked Robin if she knew anybody that was interested in adoption. Well, she knew a couple of families and talked to them. And there was a lady uh, that she worked with that her and her husband had been married uh, for, for several years and uh, had tried having children and had, I don't know how, a bunch of miscarriages which ironically, and this seems to happen so much when people adopt, uh, they're pregnant now with twins and very far into the pregnancy. I would hope past the, the, the danger zone at this point. I mean, months farther than she'd ever made it uh, before. But, uh, you know, through all of, uh, of this, and like I said, Robin was the go-between between these people and lawyers, th- this whole thing. And, and so, you know, they have adopted now this little child. And so, you know, Jesus did that for us. Jesus came from heaven to earth, Paul said in Galatians, to redeem us of our sins. He died on the cross. He paid for our sins that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
He was the go-between. He's the one that brought it about. He's the one that made it happen. And, and, and this gives us a picture in the love of God. I mean, I want you to think about this. Um, I mean, I really admire people who, who adopt. I mean, it, it's hard for me to fathom. I mean, I, I'm blessed, you know, with loving parents. My parents are, are, are still alive. You know, to, to think about growing up as, as an orphan, growing up without a family, um, and, you know, we have some people in our church who, who have adopted. And, you know, that's a big decision. And, and, and there's some sacrifice that's involved in that. But, but I want you to think about something. What if one of your biological children had to die in order for you to be able to adopt an, an orphan? You doing that? You're standing in a sense that's what God did for us. Because we weren't just orphans, we were in the bondage of sin. His enemies alienated from him. And it took a spiritual regeneration, a spiritual resurrection. It took the atonement of our sins. And Jesus paid that price so that we could receive the adoption of sons. And if we see it that way, let's not take for granted what he's done for us and what it means to be a part of the family of God and what it means to be sons and daughters of the Father. That's what we're talking about when we say, I am adopted as his child. And, and, and if he's done all that to make us his children, he must really love us and he must want what's best for us and he must be looking out for us and he must be taking care of us and he must be working all things together for our good, even when it doesn't seem like it in the day-to-day -day difficulties of our lives sometimes. So can we say that together? Can we say I'm adopted as his child on the count of three? One, two, three. And then last thing, we see here that I am a recipient of his grace in his beloved son. The last phrase of verse 6 says, uh, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That's how it's worded in the New King James. And, you know, that, that's, it's encouraging to think, well, God accepted me. But, but that's not the, the, really the best translation of this. Uh, I mean, he, he's talking about giving us, pouring out his, his grace uh, upon us. Um, in, in, in the beloved is Jesus. Uh, you know, the Father loves the Son, and in, 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 in Christ, we're loved like that as well. And, and so we're lavished with grace in, in the beloved. And, and, and the only way that God can love us is love us by or through His grace. Love us not because of us, but despite us. Okay? So I want to read you something from one of Dr. D.A. Carson's uh, books that, uh, I mean, listen to this because I think it illustrates it perfectly. He says, uh, picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach hand in hand at the end of the academic year. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They've kicked off their sandals and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. But here's the question. What does he mean? I mean, you know, what's that mean when a man says to a woman, a woman says to a man, I love you? Well, here's some possibilities. Dr. Carson says, well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than he feels like testosterone on legs and wants to go to bed with her. But if we assume he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, uh, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Uh, your smile is so beautiful to me. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. That sound reasonable? What he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Uh, your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. 
your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis, Genghis Khan look like wimps, but I love you. Probably doesn't mean that, right? It's probably not who he's out on a date with. But now God comes to us and says, I love you. Seen that in this text. What does he mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. That, after all, is pretty close to what some therapeutic approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us. And dear old God is pretty vulnerable, finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes. When he says he loves us, does not God rather mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people of the bad breath, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway, not because you're attractive, but because it's my nature to love. He chose us in love and sent his son to make us holy and blameless, to adopt us as children of God, and to lavish his grace upon us not because we're so awesome, but because we're so bad. And by doing it this way, he gets all the glory and the praise and the blessing for it. That's the gospel. And so if you're not in Christ, I want you to see that this is what Jesus has done for you. And I encourage you uh, to do what verse 13 says when it says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of your salvation is that you're hopeless and helpless, that you deserve to go to hell because you sinned and rebelled against God. And there's nothing you can do to fix or save yourself but God and his love and his mercy and his grace has chosen you and he sent his son Jesus uh, to die for you and if you'll turn from your sins and surrender to Jesus as the Lord of your life trusting him God will forgive you and accept you and make you his own make you his child and for those of us who are saved who, who know him who are children of God let's live our lives out of this grace out of this new identity in this security that we have in him, praising him, blessing him, giving him glory because he's worthy because of who he is and what he's done for us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.